Hello and welcome back to TGE's Current Read. I am Sam Herbst and my guest today is author Claire Horn, a postdoctoral research fellow at Dalhousie University's Health Law Institute. Her work over the last six years has focused on law and policy governing social, sexual and reproductive health, rights and technologies. Claire, welcome to TGE's Current Read. Oh, this is to be here. This is probably the most exciting of the non-fiction books that we've covered on this podcast. Not very many, but like I showed you before we started recording, it this book has been flagged <laughs> <laughs> and annotated to within an inch of its life. I feel sorry for whoever bor- borrows this book from me because they've got all my thoughts and notes and everything Actually, the if it were on Kindle, everything would be highlighted. <laughs> <laughs> that is really such an honor. Thank you so much for, for reading it closely and engaging with it in that way. I'm bound to go back to it again. But t- tell us first more about you. Who are you? Who is Claire Horn? What do you do exactly? Postdoctoral research, research fellow and why do you do it? Yeah, it's kind of all in the name. So I'm a researcher in health law. So I have a PhD in law. And throughout my time as a research fellow and during my PhD, I've really focused at looking um, at issues in reproductive rights, health and justice. And in particular, I've always been really interested in how new reproductive technologies pose challenges for the way we do things like protect reproductive rights and for issues in uh, health equality as well. Um, And I guess as to why I do it, I just think that reproduction touches our lives in really significant ways. So experiences ranging from abortion to miscarriage to infertility to pregnancy and birth and postpartum, these are really significant chapters in our lives that will affect many of us. And there is still so much more research to be done to better support people as they go through these things. Um, And then on a personal note, I'm also the parent of a 14-month-old. Yes. And that you start this book off, and you end it actually, with mention of being pregnant while Mm -hmm. you wrote it, which I'm sure was a trip in and of itself. How did you stay focused on the objectivity and look you know while you're experiencing it because you you were completing it and submitting it in your last trimester (laughs) you're feeling all of these things that you're speaking about in the book on a visceral level because of what you're going through physically but also because you've immersed yourself in this as as your job and your vocation yeah that it, I think the best way to describe it is exactly as you put it, which is that it was a bit of a trip because, of course, with the way that the publishing industry works, I was sort of well underway in thinking about the book uh, when I became pregnant. And also I had been researching these topics for many years before that. And then it kind of transformed the trajectory of the book to be pregnant myself because I then had this kind of intimate relationship with thinking about pregnancy. And it was interesting because I kind of feel like the experience of pregnancy for me reinforced many of the ways that I already felt about some of the issues that I address in the book. So I had a pretty healthy pregnancy 
physically and emotionally until the very end. And I found that in spite of that, I was thinking a lot about how awful it would be to be pregnant if it wasn't a choice. So it reinforced my feelings about how important it is to protect reproductive rights. And then also I thought a lot about how, you know, there's all of this feminist speculative writing about artificial wombs as this kind of alternative to pregnancy. And I think what writers who speculate in that way are really doing is they're asking us to take seriously how intense and demanding an experience pregnancy can be. So I've reflected a lot on that. And then the final piece of it was that there is this um, kind of bioethical and medical literature going back decades, mostly by men who present the possibility of fully replicating gestation outside the body as so easily achievable. <laughs> they, they assume that we will definitely eventually do this. And I reflect a lot in the book about how you know, pregnancy is this very relational experience. You're, you have this relationship with this fetus and then baby that is growing inside you. So I'm not actually convinced, and I say this in the book, that that aspect of, of gestation could ever actually be artificially rendered. And you mentioned, so we're going to get to that. I want you to, to give me the elevator pitch so we can just mm -hmm. get our listeners and viewers up to speed with, with what you're talking about. It excites me so much. <laughs> I've loved every second of this. So, um, what did I want to? Sorry, my little boy's blowing his nose. I'm just going to take a break for a second. <laughs> and, um, interlude. Interlude. I lost track of what I was saying. So, so give us the the elevator pitch of what Eve is yeah. about, because I want to then ask you about those. There are. Uh, there is research currently underway with several different teams, and one of them does attempt to emulate uh, the woman, the woman's experience, or the the what what you, the inter, intrauterine experience, so a baby's experience yeah. in the womb. But um, yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself here. So what what is Eve essentially about? It's about a lot of things, but that bottom line for us, that elevator pitch. Yeah, absolutely. So Eve is about ectogenesis, which is external gestation. And that refers to the possibility of growing babies outside the body in an artificial womb. And this is very much something that, you know, scientists and futurists have been dreaming of since the 1880s, when the first incubators were introduced and they prompted a rumor that it had become possible to grow babies like flowers in a greenhouse. And as you mentioned, the possibility that part of human gestation could be replicated outside the body is on the horizon. And in Eve, I make the case that technology tends to move faster than our cultural conversations, and also that technologies are only ever as advanced as the social conditions into which they're introduced. So Eve really looks at all of the challenges that artificial wombs could pose uh, in our society. So I look at issues around parenthood, around health equality and around reproductive rights and, and examining the ways that artificial wombs could pose challenges in our unjust contemporary conditions. I'm also thinking about how we could build a better world for all pregnant and birthing people. So there are several teams currently um, working on, on this technology across the world um, that you do mention them and highlight them in the book. One of them is called Eve. Um, you can mention the, the others. Uh, 
But it's what's interesting is that two of those teams have said they are not looking to grow, to take this technology to grow a human being from um, embryo phase all the way through to full gestation. However, they do, they have called their research Eve or their technology Eve. So, and you mentioned that it's in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way. Well, if you aren't trying to replicate you know, Genesis, then what, what are you trying to do? So what what are those teams? How far have they come? And are we looking at, what, five to seven years from being able to fulfill this technology and to see, have it, you know, be out in the world? Yeah. So one of the things that I really lead with in the book, as as you'll know, is emphasizing that I am not a scientist and that I don't speak for the existing research teams. And I note that in part because... I think the teams that are currently doing this work have been very clear that what they're trying to do is to create this um, neonatal life support technology. And I'll get into kind of explaining what that is in a second. But I also talk in the book about how there are, in fact, scientists and medical research who medical researchers who have emphasized their interest in uh, working on on full ectogenesis. So actually. Um, accomplishing that feat. And I do also note in the book um, that, of course, technology is often used and developed in ways that are not necessarily intended by the initial researchers that, that do this work. So to go back, to circle back to what the neonatal technology is, as you mentioned, there are several research teams that are working on creating essentially a total liquid life support system for preterm babies. There's groups in Australia, in Japan, um, the, the group works across Australia and Japan. There's a group in the US and there's a group in the Netherlands. And our existing technologies for treating preterm birth, they effectively work to treat the complications of babies being born too soon. So being born before their organs are developed to allow them to survive in the outside world. And what makes these new technologies unique is that they effectively work to try to prevent those complications from ever arising to begin with by submerging the baby in artificial amniotic fluid that's pumped by something that approximates the placenta uh, in order to allow the baby to continue to develop as though it remained inside the womb. So it's really quite remarkable. And they're targeted at preterm babies at around 22 weeks gestation, although one team has mentioned uh, interest in working from around 21 weeks. Mm -hmm. And so far, they've had pretty successful animal trials. And at least one of the groups has talked about looking to preclinical and clinical trials with humans in the next few years. So they're really intended to kind of bridge this really difficult gap between around 22 weeks, which is really, really tiny. I can't emphasize it. It's less than a block of butter because if you're looking at 26, yeah. 25, 26 weeks, that's you're looking at on average um, about five, 600 grams. So <laughs> dial it back a few weeks and you've got a really, I mean, itty bitty um, fetus essentially. Yeah, that's right. And I think I would also say, I think part of the reason why some of the scientists who are doing this work have really tried to re-emphasize their focus on um, preterm babies as opposed to full ectogenesis. Is from, embryo, that, from embryo stage. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that patient in and of itself is incredibly significant. So preterm um, 
complications from prematurity remain the leading cause of death for children under five around the world. So this is a very significant Mm. innovation in and of Mm. itself. And important. But you go into, in the book, the other side of it. And so you so beautifully map it out. I love the journey that that you take the reader on because you start with the – if this technology, okay, he has the history, he has the backstory of where this term first came from, and he has where we're at now. But then, so there's neonatology, and I mean, so many of us know the heartache or know someone who has known the heartache of an extreme preemie. I've done um, several stories on extreme preemies, and it is, it is really devastating. Even when the baby isn't terminal, it's the complications and the trauma and this could kind of lift that, well, this could lift the burden of that trauma on so many parents. Then you get the other side. So there's where we're move the technology is moving like this, but it's also moving from the other side from the embryo. So you're going from neonatology to embryology. And then there's this middle period where ectogenesis could bridge that gap. The way that you've mapped out the book so beautifully explains it for Someone like me, who's not, I'm not, you say you're not a scientist, but I'm, you're definitely more of a scientist than what I am. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, what about, let's go to embryology there, because then we're leaning a little bit more into the ethics, I suppose, of in vitro fertilization is a really recent technology in the grand scheme of things. It's, It's in living memory that it became a reality and that comes with all of its own trauma for parents and people wanting to birth babies. But there's a limit. So what what are those limits? What is that upper limit? Because neonatology, we're looking at a bottom limit of 21 weeks. What's the upper limit of embryology? Yeah, that's such a great question. So I guess I would I would sort of start by giving you some some context in terms of the the growth of embryos outside the body. So effectively, up until about five years ago, it was generally assumed that it wouldn't be possible to grow an embryo in culture, which is in addition a lab, beyond around seven days, because that's the point when an embryo would typically implant into a uterus. And then about five years ago, two groups working in the US and the UK, respectively, were able to grow embryos in lab culture up to 13 days. And they only stopped that experiment because of the contemporary research guidelines and uh, legislation in the UK, uh, which which fits at 14 days. And I'll get into that in a moment. But what this showed was that it was possible for embryos to continue to grow in the absence of input from maternal tissue for much longer than was previously believed. There's also a group in Israel and a group in the UK that more recently have successfully grown mice from embryos into fetuses with fully formed organs using a mechanical artificial womb. So that's the first time that a mammal has been grown in that way. Again, extremely remarkable. Um, And I know that at least the group in Israel has mentioned hoping to take the mice through to full term. So I mentioned this this 14-day limit, and we can talk a little bit more about sort of the limitations in terms of filling that gap between the upper limit of embryology and the lower limit of neonatology. But one of the pieces here is that there actually is this uh, firm guideline that's been in place for many years 
In some places, it's just a scientific research guideline that says you cannot grow an embryo in culture beyond 14 days. And in other places like the UK, it is in legislation, 14 days is a cap. And that is in the process of revision in some places because the, the international body that governs stem cell research has recommended that it be considered on a case-by-case basis. But as I talk about it in the book, there will still be some pretty stringent uh, mm. ethics guidelines when it comes to sort of looking at what would the justifications be for going beyond that point. But right now, as you mentioned, um, people confronted with infertility as well as miscarriage stand to potentially benefit from this kind of research because there still is so little knowledge about what causes uh, infertility and miscarriage to happen. And those are experiences that can be deeply, deeply challenging and devastating for many people. Again, just taking the burden of that trauma, um, whether it's miscarriage or whether it's losing your baby later on or even after birth if they were um, an extreme preemie, there, it is lifting a significant amount of trauma. But I'll tell you something. For someone who, like myself, is a, a sexual and reproductive health journalist, it's a lot of my focus as a writer. That wasn't my first thought when I... So judging Eve by its literal cover and seeing what yeah. it's about so and, and thinking about ectogenesis without delving into what you delve into in the book, I did... So this is my personal reaction before engaging yeah. with the material. I did think, okay, and I discussed it with a friend, with my co-host on The Great Equalizer, our, our sister podcast, and we both said, oh, wow, imagine growing your children outside of you and you wouldn't have to put up with, with pregnancy and everything that mm-hmm. comes with it. So, And for so many women, it would be, what a blessing. For me, it would be, I'll miss the personal joy of having grown a child as much as the, you know, there were, there were a lot of pain points, but there, I still feel my children's kicks in me and they two and six. Um, so that was my first reaction. I kind of thought, Oh, and my uh, colleague, my co-host thought that's impossible because those, those babies are going to be understimulated because they're not going to be emulating the womb sounds and movement. But these research groups are trying to, they, they're not immune to everything that we've pointed out. They understand all of that. And one of them in particular is really trying to emulate the womb. And yeah. it's, you start also, it's just jogged my memory now. You start the book with um, talking about what incubators and that, yeah. that history, the yeah. fascinating, because that's where the technology essentially started. Now you've yeah. got to be adding the amni- amniotic fluid and all of that. But there's good and bad implications. And you really, did you have a list going that, that made you, because you, you really thought of everything. You, every, I, there's not one thing in the book that made me go, okay, but what about this? <laughs> what what do you have to say about this? You've really mapped out everything. So did you have a list of like a pros and cons list of ectogenesis? It's such a it's so oh I have so many, so many thoughts from what you've what you've just shared. And I guess, you know, the thing that's super interesting to me about the incubators is that really even as of when that research was beginning, which was in the 1800s, when there, when the idea of a premature baby wasn't even really in existence yet, there was already debates happening in medical journals about 
replacing that that was the language that's used about replacing the maternal body and kind of um if it would be possible to actually put the 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 early 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 born baby i need to reword that <laughs> prematurely <laughs> born baby in um a setting that replicated the womb but even in those journals you also had physicians who were basically saying it'll never happen it'll never happen. Like we need the, the, the maternal body. There's a lot going on there. There is an exchange going on there. And so it's interesting your conversation with your co-host, because I would say when I first came across the topic, which was many years ago, I had the same kind of thought process. Like my initial reaction was twofold. One was to think, yeah, that would be amazing because it would be incredible to have the option to kind of opt out of carrying a pregnancy or to be able to decide who in the family would be responsible for gestation to have it be this kind of open question. So we're leaning into into talk of equity, which you which exactly. you go into the I mean if it's not the woman carrying the child then we're looking at redefining division of labor we're looking at redefining maternal and paternal leave and even though there are people fighting that fight on another front this technology has so many implications for that 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 you unpack yeah and i guess so i'll I'll jump in there you know when you when you talked about the kinds of the pros and cons because one of the things that i've i've always circled back to i've said this already and i i say it over and over again is that technology is only as advanced as the social conditions into which it arrives. So it makes sense. It makes sense that there is so much feminist literature that is kind of longing for this technology and really delving into all of the physical and emotional and financial burdens that pregnancy can disproportionately place at the feet of women. But Artificial wombs will not solve those problems because those are problems that are problems of society. They're 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 related to continued insufficient care for many people during pregnancy and birth, for social policies that deny pregnant people the support that they need, that uh, give inequitable parental leave, that reinforces that inequitable distribution of labor. And there's also the piece of it that is that we live in a society that is constantly trying to reinforce the association between women and pregnancy. And I talk in the book about how it's already the case that there are many people that are not cisgendered women. There are genderqueer people, trans men, non-binary people that can and do become pregnant. So I think we also need to really look at the ways that our society makes pregnancy incredibly difficult for people that are that are not um, cisgendered. If we want to talk about opening up this space of gestation so that anybody of any gender can do so. And on that note, you've you're very you've got a note in the very beginning in this as a writer in this space has been a challenge and many an argument and many an unpacking and sitting with family members who are worried about the way that my brain is going and and what what are you actually saying and trying to explain to them yes everything i write about and i've probably also already made the mistake as i've been talking to you of speaking about 
pregnant woman and going, no, the, the inclusive language is, is important, which you've so beautifully, you know when people complain about using pronouns and using the they, them, and they say in English it's not possible, similar, they use a similar, similar argument with regard to inclusive language and you, so this is really a digression, but it, it really does set you up so beautifully in the book where you bring that language through and it, it doesn't, falter for a second there wasn't one time that I thought oh that's awkward or it is possible <laughs> to live inclusively and to uphold the rights of all people and and anyone who um, is looking to grow a child or enjoy equitable uh, reproductive rights and health care so thank you for that. You've set such a great example. I, I think this book is going to be, and I'm not. I'm really not just saying that. I think it's going to be seminal text for a lot of people and lawmakers who are going to be needing to lean on some kind of material as they, you know, forge their way through through what happens thank next. You so much. That's really kind of you to say, and I. I would say on the point of the inclusive language as well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. And the first is that, you know, the the way that people often contest it is to say that we are in the situation we are in where there is insufficient protection to reproductive rights and insufficient care in pregnancy and birth and postpartum because of how society oppresses women. And that is absolutely a piece of the picture. And I talk about that a lot in the book. And I argue that we can talk about um, how oppression works on a gendered basis. We can talk about structural violence against particular groups of people while also using inclusive language. And I really strongly feel that it serves absolutely everyone of every gender to use inclusive language, to recognize people's humanity. I talk as well in the book about how I've never understood people becoming indignant about the use of the word pregnant person because I found it remarkably condescending when I would go to medical appointments and be referred to as mama. It happened um, to me today. It happened yes. to me today. I was getting, I was updating my child's um, immunization record for, for school records and they called me mommy. Like I have a name. And yes, you're right. You have a name. You have a name and you're a person. And so I think to me that language just, it just makes sense. And I don't think, I don't think we can afford to be wishy-washy about it when trans and non-binary and genderqueer people are literally facing violence in our societies every day. So I think that especially cisgendered women and especially those of us who are mothers have a responsibility to actually say, no, we're going to be inclusive. We're not going to um, pander to people that, that would undermine everybody's rights to have a safe and healthy pregnancy and birth. Well, you, you hold space for all people in this book. And um, I added abortion as a topic later on um, because it's, comes later in your book and you really explain both both sides why ectogenesis could a lot of uh, they've and the 
in my research for your book, I also came across the same articles that you bring up in the book of saying that this could be the end of the abortion debate. Why is there a need for um, abortion laws or regulation if we can simply um, take your baby? You don't want to. You don't want to birth a baby. We will take the baby out of the pregnant person and put them in a what exogenic chamber and. There you have it. You and I as mothers, though, from not even as researchers or people who work in this will automatically go, uh, who's going through that that process of, of having a baby extracted from them? Who's the person going through that? And then who does this baby belong to? And there's so much more that you unpack. So what are, what are the, the arguments of how ectogenesis could impact abortion rights? Yeah. So again, coming back to this piece where it's um, compelling to dream of a future where these technologies could be used in these like progressive communal ways. Unfortunately, that is not the world that we live in. Right. And so this argument that ectogenesis could end both the right to abortion and the need for abortion. That starts back in the 1960s. And I think you you already kind of articulated it really well, the argument that gets made by, by people who, who sort of um, put themselves on the line of abortion being a moral problem that needs to be solved. They're basically saying, hey, we allow abortion to occur because to force someone to remain pregnant against their will would undermine their bodily autonomy. But if we had this technology, we could simply extract a fetus into an artificial womb to grow instead. This is the topic that that brought me really to focusing on artificial wombs. I wrote my PhD dissertation basically as a response to these ideas because they infuriated me. And I both looked at the kinds of philosophical arguments that these folks were making, but also I looked at abortion law to kind of ask the question, hey, would this technology actually potentially pose a challenge to our reproductive rights? And from the philosophical side of things, I get really in depth about this in the book, but just as a few examples, like you say, that process would still require someone to submit to a really invasive procedure. Today, the vast majority of abortions uh, involve medication, the taking of two pills. There's a really significant difference between that and asking someone to submit to something which would presumably be akin to a C-section. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, Having autonomy is about so much more than just being able to make decisions pertaining to your body. It's about what you want in your life, what you want your life to look like. And many people would not view um, this kind of fetal transfer as an equivalent to an abortion. And then at the at the the very base of it, I do not view abortion as a moral problem that needs to be solved. I view it as healthcare and as a fundamental human right. Um, and if we want to solve the quote unquote debate, the solution to that is to stop debating it and to decriminalize abortion everywhere and, and better protect it. And unfortunately, and I talk about this in the book, in any place where abortion remains something that is treated in the criminal law, as opposed to being protected as a healthcare right and regulated as healthcare, it does remain subject to challenges with any new technology that kind of lowers the point at which a fetus can survive outside of the body. And so I do think that, again, as I talk about in the book, we need to look at, at decriminalizing this healthcare 
And you you were writing this book in the midst of, or as you were finishing it up, Roe versus Wade was repealed, and it wasn't a surprise to those who who were paying attention to what was happening. But it happened, and the subsequent ripple effect has changed things globally. And I always say to I'm in South Africa. I always say, look at what's happening in our first world countries. Look at the rights of people in the UK and in the States, because that has a significant impact on us down the line. We've seen it with a lot of other social, I'll call it social phenomenon, but it's it's more than that. Um, so it's these social repercussions of what those laws are doing. So how did you, was your head spinning as these these things were happening and these laws were put in place? You had to change material, I'm sure. I did, you know, so I ended up going back to rewrite that material and to kind of add to it when my baby would have been about four months old. And I was on mat leave. So my head was just all over the place. It was quite an experience. And I also found it hard to look at because I was just so enraged. And, you know, we do find ourselves in this situation. There is a woman in the UK right now that has just been sentenced to two years in prison for um, for securing an abortion outside of the stipulations of the criminal law that is still in place there. And I think a lot of people... Um, are just so used to the idea that this would be something that we that we regulate in this way when in fact you know many of these laws are from a time when abortion was typically unsafe when when people seeking abortion outside of of a clinic was dangerous and right now abortion has never been safer as i mentioned it involves the taking of of um pills in most cases. And so the fact that it is even treated as something that we would even have justifications that are still being used around preserving safety is really questionable. And again, this comes back to an issue of gendered control over people's bodies, as opposed to an issue that is really about protecting health. So I wanted to make a comment and ask a question. And that's on the the gestational cap changes, um, you know, from country to country and in the case of the United States, from state to state in terms of how far along a woman is allowed to be before she, uh, it's, she, she'll be criminalized for seeking an abortion or for aborting her child. So in South Africa, the cap is 12 weeks. And thank you, firstly, because you've never made me think of what it might look like where there is no cap. Um, I just took it for granted. Okay, that's the that's it. That's the limit. And I I don't think people often venture further outside of their own, you know, legislation, which your book made me do. And I know in Canada where where you are, there is no cap, right? Yeah. So a lot of arguments you know, me personally with loved ones is um, that that the fetus is a life. And I mean, we're not getting into a moral argument here. We're mm-hmm. looking at legislation, which is often all too often conflated. Um, do 
do you find and 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 then another another argument is that women will use it as a form of contraception and it's similar to who's going to opt choose for um you know your baby to be extracted and for ectogenesis rather than abortion when as you mentioned abortion is now so much safer and it takes two pills instead of actually going through what is akin to a, a C-section. Do you, f- you know, and I often, my argument is often, okay, I've birthed two children. I've gone through two, two C-sections and one emergency. And I don't think that I would, and I've seen friends go through miscarriages. I wouldn't opt for that. It doesn't sound like, abortions don't sound fun. It doesn't sound like a nice Form of contraception, number one, that I just wanted to place that commentary that the same argument follows. And number two, I want, I'm, I don't know the stats yet, and maybe you do. How many women in Canada where it's not legislated that you can only seek an abortion at 12 weeks is, are the stats like going crazy? Are there lots of women who are 12 weeks and above seeking an abortion? <laughs> You know, to twelve weeks and above being pregnant, are they are they seeking seeking an abortion willingly? You know, it's it's not something. I'm just struggling to grapple with with that because I know that that would be people's argument. Yeah, and I would say so. I first say it's not my. I haven't done specific research on that. Other people have, and it's not. It's still something that's incredibly rare. It's incredibly rare for people to to seek later term abortions. It's usually under really difficult circumstances. Um, And then also you make the really good point that we have to separate these kinds of um, moral feelings that people might have about it from legislation. So I think that, I hope that most people would agree that it serves nobody for a woman who has a abortion at any stage of pregnancy to go to prison, Mm. right? Mm. And so that is the situation that is playing out right now in the UK. This woman in question has three children. It does not serve her family. It does not serve society. It does not serve her. And the idea that criminal law is the solution for a situation that is, again, it's a medical situation and it is a personal situation and it is something that is still regulated in healthcare, right? Yeah. It's not It's not to say that if you don't have a criminal law on abortion, it means that there's absolutely no kind of uh, regulation um, for providers, for instance. It's still something that is, um, that is, People give a lot of thought to create yes. yes, to make sure that it happens safely. So this brings me to something I'd really love to draw on, um, and that's how undervalued motherhood and birthing is when you mm-hmm. consider the weight of its impact on society. You start the book saying, everyone reading the book until now, to date, until this technology becomes a reality, everyone reading the book will have been carried by a woman or carried by a person, by a birthing person, have grown in another human being. And that I just love that you brought that in because the discussion is not separate of how we can talk to the cows come home about abortion rights and about the rights of fetuses 
um, versus the rights of women. But the reality is that neither a child nor the child's mother is considered by many countries in the world once the baby's born. <laughs> so there's a lot of a lot of um, rules and regulations in South Africa, as I mentioned, that that cap of 12 weeks um, and so much more. It's very a lot of women, in fact, in our country still seek out illegal abortions because of the stigma. And yet we don't have subsidized childcare. And you draw on that in the book. So, what other what other impact does does this technology have um, on the way that it will sway social sentiment? Yeah. So, I think you know when you're talking about those kinds of of closing uh, sentiments, those last that last kind of chapter. The thing that I was reflecting on was how many uh, aspects of reproductive life are are placed at the feet of pregnant and birthing people and that also is compounded by structural aspects of our society that that make for instance the the fact that even within wealthy nations like within Canada black and indigenous women from the data that we have are still the most likely to face health complications um, to face mortality in pregnancy and childbirth, and their children are still placed at risk, and that is due to things like structural racism and racism in healthcare. So the burdens or the challenges um, that are placed at the feet of pregnant and birthing people are also shaped by our identities in in society. But there are so many so many things where it is kind of just assumed that you alone should figure it out. <laughs> and so we talked a little bit, you know, about the absence of um, sufficient access to healthcare during pregnancy and birth and postpartum. And we talked a little bit about the absence of access to childcare and the inequitable distribution of care labor that goes on in many people's homes. And I think one of the things that I kind of circle back to in the conclusion to Eve is that all of those, those uh, facets kind of help explain to me why there would be some feminists who kind of dream about this technology. Also, why there would be some that fear it mm -hmm. because they imagine how everything that is inequitable about our society could be written on to this future technology. And it also speaks to me again to this piece of how how is it so easy for some bioethical uh, scholars to just assume that it would be so easy mm. to replicate all of the things that that people take on when they carry a pregnancy? What I love also about how you pull this all together, how everything weaves in, is you look at uh, not just research papers and academic studies and scientific studies and, and journal entries. You talk about fiction. And you mentioned you draw a lot on Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And I yeah. will, sp will spend too much time if I have to search for it. But there was mention of another um, science fiction dystopian novel that was written by a woman that looked at things a little bit differently. Is there anything that you read 
in your research for this book that rang true or that you thought nobody knows about this, this you know, that, that surprise, that took you by surprise? Yeah, I mean, so I talk about this series that predated uh, Huxley's book. That's the Today and Tomorrow series where you have all of these kinds of um, young philosophers and writers debating technological developments, including the artificial womb. And one of the contributors was Vera Britton, who was the nurse and novelist. And she is writing from this imagined future with an artificial womb. And her take is kind of like, oh, yes, this technology was introduced and everybody was really obsessed with it for a while. But then it turned out that that children grown in this way were kind of um, unable to thrive because there is something about a relationship that happens in pregnancy in somebody's body that that cannot be replicated. Yeah, it's symbiosis. Yeah, symbiosis, exactly. And the fact of the matter is, again, we simply, you know, you you mentioned earlier the um, that some of the research groups are looking at sort of replicating certain certain of the less tangible elements of pregnancy. So things like being able to play um, the pregnant person's voice or the parent's voices. Um, and that is certainly one piece of it, but I don't know, you know, you've, you've experienced pregnancy too, but there, there are so many other elements of it that we know so little about. Mm -hmm. And it's not simply about a voice, right? Mm -hmm. It's this back and forth Mm. I want you, please, before we wrap up, to read from from your book for the audience. Um, and I've mapped out that part, and it is going back to to abortion, to the topic of abortion, but so beautifully outlines the impact that that this might have on on women and exactly where we're lacking as a society in, in taking care of our birthing people so we cannot simply assume that the answer to the vast problem of managing the care of every fetus unwanted by a pregnant person is that someone would want to adopt them for every situation where the other progenitor or a family member might come forward, there could be a situation where no one could be found to care for the infant once it reached term. The infrastructure that would be required to gestate every unwanted fetus through ectogenesis would be costly, both in terms of machinery and in terms of human labor. Would they be wards of the state or would a caretaker have to be found for each fetus before a transfer could occur? That each of these emotionally charged questions is frequently left out at the blight claims that artificial wombs will replace abortion is indicative of how careless many of these authors are about what it takes to gestate a baby and to care for an infant once born. And how careless, too, about what a person must weigh up when they choose whether to proceed with a pregnancy. Assuming that these are considerations that would simply fall into place speaks to how little our society acknowledges that pregnancy and then parenthood is hard work and work often done by one person alone without resources. The idea that we should simply assume that fetuses in artificial wombs would be provided for when so many pregnant people and parents are left to struggle is a cruel contradiction. In a world where the children of migrants, of black and indigenous parents, of working class parents are not only left without support, but often targeted with violence, it is unconscionable to simply assume that creating an infrastructure to grow otherwise aborted fetuses through ectogenesis would be a straightforward social good. 
so good. If you had to look at my annotations, you'd see yes with an exclamation mark <laughs> there. That, you know, to assume the role that parents take and to assume that we'd be able to replicate the magic of what a womb does is is a, a big assumption. Um, you titled this book. Eve, the disobedient future of birth. Why the dis- the disobedient future of birth? Yeah. So for me, that word disobedient means refusal. And we live in a society where, as we've talked about, many people are unable to access abortion. They're unable to access safe and sufficient and culturally appropriate care during pregnancy and birth and postpartum, where we still have really inhumane treatment of people that experience miscarriage, where we still have global and racialized inequity in in healthcare and outcomes for pregnant and birthing people. So this is a really insufficient and unjust status quo. And so being disobedient to me in the title of the book is about refusing that. Claire, uh, there's so much that I'm looking forward to reading from you in the future. And I hope that that doesn't feel pressure filled. <laughs> I hope that there's just more to unpack and uncover because you've, your brain is something I'd just like to kind of pull draw from via osmosis. <laughs> but, you know, I will just keep reading and punting your whatever you write next. What is next for you? Are you delving deeper into a different kind of research or more of the same? Because this is this is a fast developing the subject matter is fast developing. It's hard to keep track of what's happening. Well, thank you so much, first of all. Um, that is really, really kind. It's a really lovely vote of confidence. Um, I have a few different projects going on. I've been working on this topic for many years now. Um, so I think that I'm I'm sort of starting to cast around to look at other things. And one of the areas that I'm already writing on is uh, birth and postpartum. Uh, you know, I handed over the last draft of the book and then my baby was born about two weeks after that. So it kind of in some sense, picks up a little bit where I left off. I'm so excited for that. I'm so (laughs) excited for it because there is a lot internationally that we need to look into, starting with postpartum, um, postpartum, not even postpartum, perinatal. Perinatal mental health is something I'm passionate about. And I I hope that we have a discussion in the future that unpacks that further. But for now, I'm going to wrap up on your phenomenal achievements. There's so much... It's 200 pages, but I've never seen so much beautiful density in and, and so beautifully written as well. So thank you for that. It's not, it's not too overwhelming. It's not so long, but it packs such a punch. It's a, it's a, it's a book that I would recommend any body who is, you know, on this path of trying to figure equitable rights of, of you know, and reproductive and sexual health rights out read this book because you you cover it all so beautifully so thank you and thank you for joining me on TGE's Current Read My pleasure 